Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of our shepherd, our shepherd and redeemer, the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people who respond by your spirit to your word. We pray that we would be a people uh, that would uh, seek to find and train men to the office of elder. And Lord, we pray that you would use such men for your glory, not only in the midst of this congregation, but around the world. Again, we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. For the past two weeks, as we've begun to examine Paul's letter to Titus, I've tried to make the case for the office of the elder. We see in the opening verses, right, that Paul has specifically commissioned Titus to, to appoint elders in, in all the cities as he, he goes about. Um, and that by, by these elders, the church is going to be established we shouldn't miss that that's the purpose of the elder, is that the church is established. We also see that there are difficulties at this very young church at Crete, where there are false teaching that is kind of creeping in, and that Paul, as he instructs Titus to establish elders, is anticipating that these elders would work to speak against the false teaching and to push against it, to root it out. We recognize that this false teaching is for the end of sordid gain. We see that it's upsetting whole households. And we recognize that it leads people astray. And Paul is saying that this ought not be. And so he calls on Titus to appoint elders. Now, as we think of the qualifications of the elder, we recognize that there, you know, there are many ways that we could, say, slice the onion, You're rather thinly, rather thickly, and there might be value in various ways, but as we think about it, I see two main divisions. There are qualifications within the home, and there are qualifications within the wider church and community. But in both kind of, of these sets of qualifications, we understand that they are just that, qualifications. They're not exemplars, right? Paul is not saying that these are the things that, boy, wouldn't it be great if an elder fulfilled them. These are the foundations for competence. I think an analogy might be helpful. We could understand, right, that for an actor, one of the, the qualifications for a role, say you're, you're going to be acting in a Shakespeare play, one of the qualifications is to memorize your lines. Okay? Now, we could split out the errors in a couple of different ways. One is we could imagine that we have just a monotone computer reading off the lines of Shakespeare. It would sound terrible, but it would still be Shakespeare. On the other extreme, you could have, say, a, a young actor or an actress dressed the part in, in the regalia of Romeo and Juliet or, or whatever the, the character is, and they could be charismatic and winsome and, and eager to, to, to communicate, but if they don't know the lines of Shakespeare, whatever they deliver will not be Shakespeare, right? It just can't be. They don't meet the qualifications. As we understand what an elder is and what an elder is called to do, 
Titus here is giving some qualifications. That's the foundation. Now, what exactly is the elder to do? We understand that he's saying that there's some things to do and to be, right, or, or to, to, to have. If you're married, right, you need to have one wife. If you have children, they're to believe. You're to be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful words so that you're able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute any who contradict. On the other hand, there are things you're not to be, namely self-willed, quick-tempered, addicted to wine, pugnacious, or fond of sordid gain. And in all of it, the elder is to be above reproach and bring glory to God. And again, this is not as though uh, Paul is saying, oh boy, I, I hope and pray that I could have you know, a man that fits these qualifications. You give me one of these and, and, and I'll, I'll take the world for Christ. I'm sure he's praying for them. But he's praying for them in expectation that there would be men who, who meet these qualifications that would be called to serve within the church. Now, as we reflect upon these qualifications for an officer in the church, it's important for us to think about Emmanuel Lydie's church. It's important because we remember that the role of the elder is to push against the culture and is to correct in, you know, poor thinking within the church. And as I find church officers like so much of what we do, if we're not careful as Pastor John says, becomes the wallpaper of our minds. Could be beautiful, could be shabby. We don't know, it's just kind of there. And if we're not careful, the office of elder becomes that. It's kind of over here and it does stuff. Not really sure what or why that's important. Now as we think about this office here, we see that the elder is to give structure in teaching, right? Establishing the church. It corrects, the, the office of elder corrects wayward behavior, wayward instruction. And as it does so, as, as officers that are elders do so, what they're doing is they're bringing glory to God as they live lives that are above reproach. We then, as God's people, must endeavor to find and train and install faithful, godly men who are called to be elders. So that these men who might understand the errors that perhaps we have, or the errors in the, the, the wider culture, they can understand them and push against them. Now, as we look at Titus, uh, we see that in these verses, he uses two words for an elder, or two words for an officer, I'll say. The first is elder, and the second is overseer. And thus far, I've, I've largely treated those as synonymous. And I think to kind of figure out what he's after here, it's helpful to look at the Greek words that they come from. Now, sometimes when you hear, oh boy, we're going to look at the Greek words, we think, well, why? Is this helpful? You already know these Greek words. You might just not know that you know them. So the first one, which is for elder, comes from the Greek word presbyteros, from which we get the word Presbyterian, right? It's just, it's the word brought into English. And um, we, as we think about Presbyterian, we think about uh, churches who, who would hold that 
the church should be organized and, and led and, and ruled, if you will, by a group of elders called together to serve as a session. Simply put, the word presbyteros means old man. Now, as we understand the context of Paul talking about old man, we, we understand that he doesn't necessarily mean physically old or physically mature. He's talking about spiritual maturity. Uh, now, those two are sometimes linked. After all, Proverbs 16.31 says, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. But we also know that that's not always the case. Sometimes there are foolish, older gentlemen. Sometimes there are wise, younger men. We see that Timothy and Titus are both examples of men who are blessed by the Lord to serve in this sort of capacity even though they were relatively young. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul specifically says to Timothy, don't let anyone look down upon your age. Don't, don't let anyone discount that. Paul is recognizing here that, that the Lord's work in Timothy transcends the number of his years. He is a mature believer, and he fits the qualifications of a leader within the church. We see... The same is true for Titus. Again and again and again, as Paul calls him to be bold and to speak and, and to not be dissuaded, he has in view this very same thing. Though young, he is mature in his faith. He is an elder. The second word that Paul uses here is overseer. And this comes from another Greek word, episkopos. Now, I hope you hear in episkopos, episcopalian. Right, So, Episcopalians, Anglicans, as well as Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, a whole host of other folks, they would say, see that these two words that Paul is describing are two separate roles. One is the elder and one is the overseer, sometimes called a bishop. I'm using them somewhat interchangeably, not somewhat, I am using them interchangeably. So, so what is my justification? Well, if, if you consider 1 Peter 5, which we just read just a moment ago, uh, verses 1 and 2 say this, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Right? And then he goes on to enumerate a, a list of, of characteristics. But he's saying here that elders are to function like shepherds, and they're to do so function, uh, uh, exercising oversight. Well, overseer, oversight, they're the same words, and they're the same words in the original text as well. And what's more is we see Peter rightly is saying that the elder is an overseer. Uh, he's supposed to live alongside of his flock, watch them, understand them, live with them, share life with them, and minister to them. He literally oversees them with his eyes. It's a functional title. And we have functional titles in, in all manner of, of life. You know, the head of our, the executive branch of our government could be rightly titled the chief magistrate, because that's what he is. But that's not what we call him. We call him the president. It's actually, it's a functional title because we understand him to be the one who presides 
over the executive branch of our government. He, he's the one who's presiding over the affairs of the government. The, the title of overseer here is Paul's way of describing the elder in the same way. It's a functional title. Now, as we then think about overseers, as we think about elders acting out oversight over people, we ought not think of micromanagement that I come into your home and I say, oh, well, you know, the, the, the fork is supposed to be on this side of the plate. Nothing, that's silly. What, 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 I'm, what it is is it's a lived life, a shared life wherein elders live alongside their flocks ministering to them at all stages of life, from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows. Now, as we think about um, Lydie's Church, you understand that we have elders. You also understand that we have deacons, and, and it's true in Titus, uh, we, we don't see a description of a deacon uh, but if I may, as we think about applying this text to us, I think it will be helpful. Uh, let us consider 1 Timothy 3, which is a similar passage. It talks about the role of the elder, but it also lays out some qualifications for deacons. There, Paul talking to another young man, another young man that is, is ministering in kind of similar waters, as it were. He lays out some qualifications and he shows that both elders and deacons must be above reproach, husbands of one wife. Uh, they must manage their household well, which Titus, you know, Paul even adds to say they must have children that are believers. Um, you're talking about their, their character, not addicted to wine or fond of sordid gain. And as you see Paul lay out this, the elder and deacon in 1 Timothy 3, you see that there's one primary division. And that is that the elder is to hold fast the word of truth so they might exhort in sound doctrine. That means correct people that are within the church if they're going astray. And refute those who contradict. That's addressed both within and outside of the church to refute those who say that the Bible is wrong or part of the Bible says something that it doesn't. That's the primary difference. That's what elders are called to do. From this fact, and the fact that we see in the book of Acts, the seven men originally called as deacons were called to serve the physical needs, we would say that both are necessary within a healthy church, but they have different functions. Elders are men called to, prime minister, to primarily minister to the spiritual needs of the congregation. And deacons are men called primarily to meet the physical and material needs of the congregation. We see in Scripture there's evidence that both do both, but as a general principle, this division of labor holds. Now, you know, talked a little bit about Presbyterians, a little bit about Episcopalians or, or other similar groups. Here we recognize that we are a congregational church. Now, we're congregational, but we're not a democracy. Now, maybe your, your memory of freshman high school civics is just as dim as mine, um, so stick with me. We, we understand here that a democracy is a group that, that 
governs itself, wherein all of the members vote. Everybody has a say. Though we're a congregational church, we don't work in that way. And I say thank, thank goodness for that. Because then we'd have to have a congregational meeting to figure out um, how long the cords that we want to buy are and if that's a good decision and what color the hymnals are in the back of the, the pews and, and how often we should be cleaning the windows and all kinds of decisions. And quite frankly, if we tried to do that, we'd find we wouldn't do anything other than meet as a congregation to try to make decisions. I think there'd be lots of hurt feelings and not a lot of communication. Instead, we're a congregational church that functions representationally. It governs representationally. What do I mean by that? Well, if you remember directly before the, the Revolutionary War, the, the phrase, no taxation without representation, right? That it, was, it was when colonists were upset that they were being taxed, but they didn't have a say in the way that the world, well, the colonies were run. We recognize that we don't have to worry about taxes in this assembly. Again, another thing to say thank goodness about. Uh, but, we, but that notion of representation still holds. Here, we are governed in a representational way. And we have two bodies at our church wherein we make decisions. The first is spiritual Council, which is comprised of elders, and it makes decisions specifically about the spiritual health of the church, the orthodoxy of teaching, and, and provides feedback when there is error. The second is consistory, which is comprised of both elders and deacons and provides for the executive function of our congregation. It makes decisions on, on all manner of things, building usage or how, basically how to, to execute the budget. That's the way in which our church makes decisions. Now, that doesn't mean that, that if you're not serving in, on those two committees that you don't have a say. In fact, you do. Again, we're a congregational church. And so we recognize that, that men are called to be officers in the church by God. But we recognize that they are recognized as such. We acknowledge them as such as a church. It's for that reason that in the late summer or early fall, we have a congregational meeting and we vote on men we think are qualified and called to be officers within the church. In addition to that, you know, Pastor Steve and I have asked for nominations from all of you for, for those same officers. It's why we have a congregational meeting each January to discuss and approve a budget. It's also why we're praying that we're going to have a congregational meeting uh, to vote on a new senior pastor when the Lord shows us his candidate. Now then, even as we consider a pastor, uh, we, may, we might wonder, well, is that an elder or is that a deacon or is that a third office? And we would say it, it's actually quite simple. A, a pastor is an elder. Not all elders are pastors, but all pastors are to be elders. A pastor then is just someone who's an elder in the church, specifically called to preach and teach the gospel. Now, as we think about Paul's writing in Titus, we recognize that he didn't have Emmanuelides specifically on his brain when he wrote it. 
Though I do pray that if he were to think of Emmanuel Lydes, perhaps the words, you know, liar, evil, beast, lazy, glutton wouldn't be, you know, his description of us. Um, But we understand that he wrote a long time ago, and we are now many centuries later. As we think about that, it would be easy for us to dismiss the qualifications as old, outdated, outmoded. That's not the case. They still hold true for us today. We still need to use Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 as we look at the foundational qualifications for elders within this church. Paul gives certain traits that are within the family and certain traits that are kind of outside the home in the community. Of the home, Paul says that elders are to have one wife. They're literally to be a one-woman man. Uh, Not only that, they're to have believing children. Now, there's been some discussion on what exactly believing children might mean, but we see in this verse, that is verse 6, that it's qualified by something. It says that children, the children of elders, are not to be accused of dissipation, which means wastefulness, or rebellion. Don't miss, though, what we talked about last week. Verse 6 and verse 10 have the same word rebellion or rebelliousness. In verse 6, it's talking about the children of elders. In verse 10, it's talking about the false teaching that is creeping in from the wider community. In essence, Paul is saying to Titus about the church at Crete, you know the men that you you feel are called to be elders? Their, Their households should exist in such a way that their children should not evidence the same behavior as the wider community. And I think the logic here is relatively simple. If an an individual appears to be a mature Christian man, but he has children who reflect the wider anti-Christian culture, it's difficult to see how he's fulfilling his first commitment to be a husband and a father. But even as we think about that in our individualistic society we see that there's a logic that makes us squirm a little bit. Because it means that people who would be called to be elders are deemed suitable or qualified for factors that are not entirely in their control. But then if we're honest, there's a lot of life that is that way. And I think speaking as a father, speaking as an elder, I think that that forces me and should force us all to be more prayerful in the way that we parent our children, recognizing that all of us have to have a work of the Holy Spirit within our heart to make us say no to sin and yes to godliness. All of us need a work of the Spirit within our heart so that we would turn to the Lord Jesus and say, my Savior and my God. As we see then, there are characteristics within the home. There are also characteristics within the wider community. We see that there are some don'ts, right? In verse 7, we see that the elder is not to be self-willed or quick-tempered, addicted to wine, pugnacious or fond of sordid gain. How are we to put that, fit that, understand that? Well, it's to say that the elder should not be focused on his own desires and addicted to pleasure. And when crossed or when wronged or when contradicted, the elder shouldn't be violent when challenged. 
Instead of that, instead of that picture, the elder is to be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. All of these are actions which are observable by the wider community. They're, all of them are observable by the church. In that regard, the elder, by his life, both within his home and within the community, is to be above reproach, bringing glory to God. That's not, strictly speaking, a popular message. Not only that, we see that this elder is to work to know the Scriptures, to teach the Scriptures. And from the rest of Scripture, we see that that is to the ends of the earth. Again, not a popular message. You know, what I mean by that is, you know, throughout the church, as people interact with a broken world, there is often a tendency to add to the gospel or to subtract from the gospel in order to make it more accessible. So perhaps with regard to the qualifications of an elder, eh, we'll let this one slide or that one slide. With regard to teaching, it's a focus on maybe it's a work of righteousness or maybe it is in some other way a distraction from the message of the gospel. Quite simply, the message of the gospel is the message of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, whereby righteousness was accomplished for you and for me before God. If I add to that or if I take away from that, I, I fundamentally alter the gospel. Paul says in his letter to the Galatians that someone who does that is to be accursed. Elders then we see in their qualifications are called to bring glory to God by their behavior and they do so first and foremost because they're sinners and they're unable to meet those qualifications apart from a work of the Holy Spirit. We see second that they bring glory to God and they, 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 they magnify the name of the Lord by the final application of their calling. We see that in verse 9. It says that an elder is to be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The conclusion of Paul's list of qualifications of being an elder has its greatest outward focus. As the elder is called to exhort and refute, they're called to teach. They're called to proclaim the gospel. They're called to, to, to push against unbelief within the church and without. Now, as we think about what that would look like, I think that the passage or the, the verses we read in 1 Chronicles 12 give us a picture. Here, David is, is uh, king in Judah, and he's restrained by Saul, and, and people start showing up to you know, pledge their support. And eventually, an army grows out of that, and, and it gives descriptions, you know, so-and-so came, this many came from this tribe, and this many came from this tribe, and this is how they were, and this is what they did, and those of Issachar, I think, are most profound. Again, it says, of the sons of Issachar, 
men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Their chiefs were 200, and all of their kinsmen were at their command. In short, the elder, like the chiefs of the the sons of Issachar, are to be men who know the day, know the errors that are being promulgated outside of the church and within, and they're to have knowledge of, of what to do, how to follow the Lord, how, how to proceed forward. As we think about an elder, it's a high calling. This man reflects the glory of God, not of his own strength, but by the Holy Spirit working within him. He should, again, understand the times and rightly teach within them. As we then think about this, elders and deacons, both called by God to serve his people, they're both necessary for the healthy function of his church. Paul here in his letter to Titus, for Titus and for the elders of Crete and for the Cretan people as a whole, gives a picture of the elder as the one who establishes the church and instructs within the church. Seeking to glorify God and proclaim His name. Though Emmanuel Leidy's church has celebrated decades, many decades, of the Lord's providential care in biblically faithful preaching and shepherding, we continue to pray for faithful elders, just as Paul prayed for Titus. Though we're an established church, we pray that the Lord would raise up men qualified to serve as elders, faithful men, one of which we pray is a senior pastor for us. We pray that the Lord would open doors of opportunity, new ministry opportunity, through the raising up of men called to be elders, and that the Lord would give us all boldness to follow wherever He leads. Amen.